We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. My guest today is Dr. Amelia Thompson, who is someone that I have personally followed on Instagram for a long time. I feel like she is someone who I've learned so much from, and there's a lot of what she talks about that I really feel reflected back in my own journey and in myself. Uh, a little bit about her, she has a BSc in sports biomedicine, an MSc in sport and exercise nutrition, and a PGCAP, I hope I got that right, in higher education and has been a fitness and life coach for many years. Um, we are going to dig into some really deep stuff today. And just as a little trigger warning, we will be talking about eating disorders. So if that's not something that you're ready to hear right now, please feel free to come back to this episode at a point when you feel ready to hear it. So Amelia, how are you doing? She's in Austin, Texas, guys. So we have her from another continent um, chatting to us. I'm so grateful to have you on. How are you doing? Hello, I'm great, thank you. I'm very happy in Austin, yeah. Although I was saying to you, it's, it's pretty cold here. I'm quite upset that it's not always hot. So this morning it was two degrees, so I'm getting over that. Um, but other than that, it's all good. I'm not going to complain. How are you? Yeah, I'm feeling good. I mean, like coming to the end of January vibes, but actually in a weird way, this January has been less January, January than January is normally, if that makes any sense at all. I feel a bit better about this January than I have done previous ones, which is always good. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to have you on today. And like I said in my introduction, there's so much of what you talk about that I really personally relate to. Um, and there's so much of stuff that you talk about that I feel really holds a mirror up to my own experiences and my own journey, um, even to where I am today and, and you know stuff that I've been through previously. And I think that you know, you come at it with such a breadth of expertise, which is so nice. You know, whilst you talk from personal experience, you also have so much um, kind of grounding in you know education and and all your qualifications that you hold. Um, but I first wanted to just ask you, like, what took you into studying um, in the first place? Like, you you do come from an academia background. Like, what led you down that path and into that kind of area of, of studying? Yeah. So I started with sports by medicine because I went to like different universities and there was one room and it was just filled with men I was like, oh I wonder what that room is I didn't know what I wanted to do and there was just this room filled with men I thought I'm gonna go in and look at that course and the course was sports biomedicine and at the time I knew I liked science and I just thought well, this looks quite fun I was really kind of blase when I was 17 18 or 17 at the time and undertook sports biomedicine and fell in love with it and fell in love with it at the time of professor that I had that specifically taught me nutrition and I thought I'll just pursue that a little bit further he really reignited this love that I had for specifically at the time performance nutrition I wanted to go and work in with elite athletes and I did for a short time but what I found was that actually as I fell further into studying my master's in sport nutrition and doing some work with elite athletes 
I found it really unrewarding. Like I didn't really care if someone ran 0.01 seconds faster. That didn't ignite anything in me whatsoever. And at the time of me studying my master's, I also started competing in bodybuilding. And so for me, I'd always had disordered eating habits since I was about 15 or 16 years old. And no matter how much I studied and how much knowledge I gained, I realized it didn't actually impact anything about the way that I treated myself. I knew what I was supposed to do. And yet, for whatever reasons, I couldn't use that knowledge and, and change the way that I was struggling with my own relationship with food. I was chronically restricting. I was binge eating now and again. Yeah. And so bodybuilding, as I'm sure you can relate to, this was 2014, 2015. It presented this glorified way of controlling my body and and restricting and getting trophies for it and being glamorized. And so I fell into bodybuilding. And as a result of bodybuilding and my own dysfunctional eating habits, I found that actually my eating habits got a lot worse and even more dysfunctional. And so as I continued my academic studies, I did my PhD in physiology, I taught in sport nutrition. I felt like I was kind of living two different lives. I had all of this academic stuff and I was struggling with my own relationship with food at the same time. So then I kind of came together and mar started marrying them together a little bit. There's so much to unpick there, but that is so interesting. And I feel like bodybuilding is such a, I mean, that's a topic in itself that we could dig into in terms of what it does for people and what it presents for people. But I think that another really interesting aspect of what you were talking about was, you know, almost trying to validate your behaviors by learning more about them and therefore being able to support, you know, disordered eating uh, patterns and uh, restrictive ex uh, exercise and, and kind of eating regimes by saying, but but it's grounded in science, you know, but I know what I'm talking about and I have this. And I and I think it's a really common thing that you tend to see, you know, people try and get really clued up on a subject so they can almost like, and I know that I, I personally did this, you know, so that I could almost like validate my behaviors. And I think it's a really interesting psyche. You're so right. We I think there's two things. To it. The first is that we think if we learn enough, we can change our behaviors. That's the first thing. We think if we have enough knowledge, then we can just click our fingers and change the way that we do things. And okay. deep down, that's what we want. But then the other side of that is, well, if I can't change my behaviors, I can just validate them by saying, well, there's lots of published research on bodybuilding on how to do it in a good way. So that means it's okay to do it. And if you have, I think if you have a bit of a perfectionist mindset or you like research, you like education, you, you like science, you're always going to find something to back up what you're doing. And it just kind of dissolves you of any sort of um, onus about your own behaviours because you can just say well the books say to do it like this I'm just following the rules so it's fine and really like that's where it's so interesting to see where you've ended up now because you've almost like whilst having all of that as part of who you are and part of your makeup you've also gone the complete you know opposite of that in terms of drawing upon you know emotional and kind of um, psychological issues that can't be grounded in science that go beyond, you know, being able to read what we see in a textbook. Um, and it's so interesting to see you kind of, and I, and I wrote this when I was doing my notes for this episode, you know, you kind of tread this fine line between having all of this grounding in science, but at the same time having real life experience of these things and these um, difficult challenges that people go through. You know, I don't know one woman who hasn't restrictively eaten at some point in their life. I don't know one woman who hasn't at some point, you know, binge eaten because it's a way of coping emotionally with some sort of distress. 
And so I think that for you, it's so nice to see someone that can kind of marry all those things together, the real life experience, but then also the ability to be able to explain, I guess, and understand a little bit better and help women to understand why we find ourselves in the place that we find ourselves. And I think the first thing that'd be really nice to dig into having just touched on binge eating would be to hear if it's okay with you, your experience of it and how you then, I guess, really learned to, uh, to understand that that was a coping mechanism for a wider issue. For sure. I'm very transparent with this. And I think it is important for people to understand that the personal experience is so important because I think it's so easy to read a textbook and see guidelines of X, Y, and Z of how you can quote unquote cure your binge eating. But realistically, knowledge is not our problem when it comes to this. There's enough knowledge out there to say that if it was a knowledge problem, no one would have binge eating problems. It's it's not. And I, so personally, I struggled with it from about 15 or 16. I had some family trauma, um, didn't we all? And that kind of became my way of coping with everything. I didn't realize at the time that's what I was doing. I started to binge eat, not regularly, it was quite sporadically, but at the same time as my family was going through a lot of troubles, I wanted to be the person or I adopted the role that everything would be okay, I would make everything okay. And I interjected all of these values from my family and I said, "I'm this is my role within the family, I'm going to fix it. And as a result of that, I didn't allow myself to waver in my positivity or waver in my um, desire to fix everything. And so internally, all of the feelings that I had that were completely valid with everything that was going on, weren't. I didn't allow them to come to the surface ever. And what I found on reflection, I can see this, is that I used food as a way to suppress those feelings so that they never came out so I could maintain this okay. role um, within my family dynamic. And that continued all the way up until my 30s, my early 30s. So 15 years of I was super positive. You know, I was always the one that was, was very high achieving. I was outwardly very positive and happy all the time. And I still stand by that. I didn't cry for like a couple of years. By the time I was 30, I was in a relationship and I remember I hadn't cried for a couple of years at all. And I found, you know, status in that. I glorified it. I thought that was amazing. Um, realistically, I was binge eating and physically pushing those feelings down. And so for me, I got into this really abusive relationship when I was 30, 31. And only when that ended, I came to California for three months. And I I discovered Brene Brown, like cliche that I was at the time. I discovered Brene Brown. I did a lot of hiking on my own. I spent a lot of time on my own and I started meditating religiously. And one day I just had this complete, what I can only explain is a bit of a breakdown where I cried for about a week. I would be walking along the street and just crying and something changed in me that made me realize I've been using food all of this time as a suppression tool and I think it was something Brene Brown had said about numbing and shame and all of these things and and that for me that was a huge turning point at this point I was already working with people with dysfunctional eating habits but and I knew the theory behind things but I hadn't quite overcome my own stuff to a full extent and so for me it was that moment where I just really again just cried for five days and really managed to reflect on everything that had come before then and only then was I then able to start working through it fully for myself with the awareness of oh that's the purpose that binge eating had served and that's what a lot of my practices now is understanding that so many of us struggle with it but it's if we can look at it in a compassionate and positive way of 
it served such an important role for me. If I hadn't adopted Benji when I was 15, I don't know how I would have coped with the grief that I felt at that time. I don't know how I would have tried to play that role in my family or what my family dynamic would have been had I not used food to support me in that way. And it's not that that is healthful and I certainly don't recommend it. But for me, seeing it in that kind of compassionate light then allows us to create space to replace it and to to change the habits. Yeah. Do you know what I really hear from that as well is that it's such a secretive habit. Um, it's something that you know, and I, I completely had this myself and my story is so similar to yours in that, again, like family trauma, um, food became a, you know, a coping mechanism. But it was for me, like it's a very secretive kind of you, you don't do it in front of anyone else. Again, there's so much shame and guilt attached to that. It's a vicious cycle as well, because a lot like other sort of coping mechanisms, it's a temporary fix for a for a much bigger issue. So you sort of lean on food, it becomes a bit of a numbing tool. Uh, you have that temporary feeling of relief and then it almost comes back tenfold because you have the shame and the guilt attached to it as well. Um, but I think that going back to that original point, this, the secrecy of it is, is almost sometimes what's the hardest part. It's often something that people do in private. They do it when they're alone. Um, much like other coping strategies, you know, it's it's almost something that you just suppress, suppress, suppress. And I think that's so interesting because, you know, it, it therefore is one of those things that can just remain hidden for so long. Like in your case, you said 15 years. I know that mine was probably a similar length. Like it just remains something that we don't have to think about, deal with because it's not in our kind of external personal life. Um, and it allows you to then get on with everything else that you want to get on with um, because you've managed to just push that stuff down. And I think for anyone that's going through that, you know, that's going through the the secrecy side, the feeling of kind of complete, I guess, inability to marry up both sides of themselves, the side that really is calling for help and the side that's trying to cope with it by doing the binge eating. How do you sort of give people advice on trying to kind of bring those two parts of themselves together? Oh, you've worded that so well. I'm just nodding along furiously. <laughs> um, you're you're so right. And and the 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 thing is is that because it's so secretive and shame filled, it really impacts our connection with other people and our ability to be exactly. authentic. Exactly. And that exacerbates the problem because connection, social connection, is one of the fundamental facets of health, and it's so related to binge eating itself. And so as we continue with this uh, secretive eating habits and shame we then exacerbate this disconnection which then increases our likelihood of repeating that and it does just become this vicious cycle I, th I honestly think the answer is is compassion there's kind of three fundamental like facets of self-compassion Kristen Neff talks about these and these are mindfulness self-kindness and common humanity and I think common humanity is common humanity is the idea that we're all flawed we all have we all mess up sometimes. We all, you know, many of us binge, which is one of the reasons why I think these conversations are so important to recognize that someone might binge, someone might have an alcohol problem, a sex addiction, or, you know, it can manifest in so many different ways, but we all feel dysregulated in some way and there's no shame in that. And I think that is the first part of really recognizing that you're not on your own. And as cliche as that sounds, and when you can start to understand that, this is not a you problem. This is a collective problem that we as a society have of being unable to regulate ourselves properly. And yours happens to manifest in binge eating. 
and especially as women with diet culture and sort of societal norms and all of that pressure, it's no surprise that that manifests in food for you. And I think really trying to show yourself that kindness as well, which comes into the compassion of just, you know, this is not your fault and there's a way out of it. And I think that's really the first step and it's often the hardest. Self-compassion and binge eating um, often don't come hand in hand. We're very hard on ourselves a lot of the time. And so sometimes that can feel like so far-fetched. Why would I ever be kind to myself when I'm doing something so stupid? But it's not. And that's, again, where I come in, where it's important to come into, well, it's not stupid because it served a purpose in some way. Yeah. And, you know, just, just to say as well, I think um, one of the things that I think a lot of women really struggle with is that the perception from the fitness community, and yes, it's changing, but slowly, and this is still very much the narrative is, it's so easy to control your diet. You know, you have this set amount of, you know, calories or whatever that you're supposed to eat a day. I'm using quite outdated terminology, but you get my point. You know, this is how much you're supposed to eat a day. If you just stick to this, calories in versus calories out, it's fine. Um, and actually, I think that what that does is it, it makes anyone that isn't somehow able to kind of stick to that feel like a failure. And then uh, accompanied with that level of, overly trying to restrict um it's no wonder that we then have these you know kind of pullaways where we have all out binges because we're just so dysregulated from what's our norm our the things like our genuine hunger and fullness signals become so um out of whack that it's almost like we just have no concept of what in, in inverted commas normal is or our normal is um, and I think that's really frustrating. The thing that I really struggle with is, you know, from my own experience of binge eating, my biggest criticism to myself was always, why the hell can't I just not do this? Like, why do I have no self-control? Why does this happen to me and only me or what felt like only me? And I think it really stemmed from this idea that I was supposed to be someone that could always just manage and control my eating normally. And when I didn't do that, it was almost seen as the ultimate failure. And I think that what you're saying there and in, in terms of that level of self-compassion like I wish I could go back and give that to myself in abundance and it's the hardest thing to give yourself in that moment where you feel you know I just remember like waking up in the morning after having had a binge and being like I feel disgusting you know I feel I self-hatred on another level and I think it really stems from that that side of restriction and that community and that narrative that makes us seem as though oh my God, it's so easy. Why can't you do it? You're absolutely right. And I, I think we've all been there. It's one of the reasons I started talking about it when I was competing because it was back in the day that you'll remember where nobody spoke about anything to do with relationships with food whatsoever. You know, it was it was a dirty, like it wasn't toxic. even a thing. It was toxic, yeah, the epitome of. And that's when I, I remember starting talking about it then and, and just thinking, is this just me? And I wrote blogs about it because I thought, oh, I'm just going to write about it because this is how I feel. And then people just kind of started crawling out of the out of their own little space of woodwork and say, well, this actually happened to me too. And I thought, oh my word, like this this is wild because the narrative, and it still is, you still have fitness people saying, well, if you just don't want to eat it, just don't have it in the cupboards. Or if you just can't trust yourself around it, like they shame you into thinking that you've got a problem because there's a difference between, okay, I can't, I, I'll have a couple of biscuits and eating if you have two bi two biscuits eating, then two packets of biscuits. There's a big difference there. And I think the problem is, is people that have never been through this themselves don't quite understand the difference between 
a bit of overeating and then genuinely struggling with binge eating. And one might be a bit of a behavioral thing. You know, if there's biscuits in the cupboard, I have to have a couple. That's probably a bit of a habit, a bit of a behavior. And you could probably change that if you really wanted to. You could swap that out for something else, have some fruit. That That's one end of it. But then the other end of it is, no, genuinely, I feel like the biscuits in the cupboard are actually shouting my name. I can't concentrate on my work because all I can think of is the biscuits in the cupboard. And I know as soon as I have one, I'm going to eat them all. That is a very different situation. And the problem is the the misinformation and the narrative in the fitness industry is, well, if you had willpower, then none of that would be a problem. Mm. And I, What's interesting is hearing you say, it, I think is so powerful because it's like you've achieved so much. You've got, you know, you've got your life together in so many ways. And I'm sure you're thinking, well, maybe I don't in other ways, but that's like, <laughs> well, you know, you're, you're a high achieving person, right? And, and this mm. is the thing. You've got willpower and self-control in so many areas of your life. And yet when it comes to food, we say, well, it must be willpower. I've got I mean, all of this evidence to say that I work really hard, that I can, you know, motivate myself and that I can achieve things in every other aspect of my life. But when it comes to food, no, no, it's definitely a me problem. It's definitely willpower and it's wild. And it is because of this narrative that we have in the media and fitness. It's not just fitness industry, it's diet culture as a whole that yeah. says, oh, you just have to change your behaviours. This is just, you know, you just have to want to do it, which is ludicrous. The other thing that I feel leading on from that is that experiences of binging in my own experience and I'm sure yours is quite similar there's a big difference between like you said with the packet of biscuits analogy like there are times when I can be completely fine and have a couple of biscuits and be you know we've had a packet of biscuits in the cupboard for for a few months and where I've been in a good place that's been fine been absolutely fine like I haven't needed that sense of numbing but if I go back maybe like a year ago there would be times where it's not just eating and then overeating, it's eating and completely mindlessly eating to a point of feeling like quite sick. Like there's no, it's almost as though um, I think people's perception of binge eating is, oh my God, you're just, you know, you're just having a few more biscuits or you're eating the whole packet, lol, you know, and have a laugh about it. And there's even that saying, you know, like, oh, I can't just have one, I've got to have the whole packet. But I think there's a big difference between that and actually the the really painful side of binge eating, the side of binge eating that is, no, I actually can't stop myself. And it's not that I'm enjoying every mouthful. I'm actually hating doing this, but I'm always at a point where I just physically can't stop it. And it's almost um, it's almost like someone has got hold of my body and is just making this happen. And I think it'll be so interesting to hear what we know from a, from a psychological perspective what happens there? What do we know about that process? And how can we better understand it? I know that we talked about understanding doesn't always equal kind of uh, recovery from it, but it would be good to understand that side of things. We'll be back after this. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it's probably useful to sort of actually define the difference with, between these things because yeah. there's, 
you know, people use overeating and binge eating quite colloquially now, and we don't really know what's what. And the key difference really between overeating and binge eating is, like you said, that feeling of a complete loss of control. So you described it so perfectly. It's almost like you dissociate from your body and it's not even you that is making those choices. It's like a knee-jerk reaction. You're reacting to the situation. You're not making a conscious choice. Whereas with overeating, generally you feel like if, if you really had to stop, you could stop. So an example of this might be now I could eat a packet of biscuits. I'm quite aware that I'm doing it, but do you know what? I'm having a good time and I'm watching a movie and I don't really mind. I'm overeating, but that's a choice and it's okay. Um, whereas in the past, I may have eaten a packet of biscuits and then eaten some more and felt a lot of guilt and shame and it wasn't a conscious choice. It was feeling like I had that dissociated feeling and that would be a binge. Um, but what's interesting and what we definitely get, we see in fitness that is wrong is binge eating doesn't always have to be this huge relative amount of food and actually with binge eating if you have a loss of control even if it's slightly less food even if it's half a packet of biscuits say that is still classified as a binge it's a subjective binge and that has if we look at the research it has the same impact on quality of life as an objective binge i.e more calories and sometimes we diminish things and we say well that's not a binge that's just half a packet of biscuits i could easily do that and and we invalidate this the struggle that someone's having because we mm. don't think it's a lot of food but if there's still that feeling of a loss of control then it's still classed as a binge and realistically it's psychologically I don't know the intricacies of like what is being switched on in our brain but what happens is we do have like these habit loops that develop in our brain so you'll have heard of neuroplasticity what happens is often we develop this process that kind of goes from A to B when I feel this way my response is why and it's it's if you imagine kind of like you're walking through a field of hay right if you I'm picturing Theresa May um, but if you're <laughs> what you've got at the moment is this path carved out in front of you and that pathway is when I feel let's go with heartbroken when I feel heartbroken I've got this path and it's carved out and at the other end of that is food and it's a really easy path to frolic down and you know skip down and that that takes me there and so we're not even thinking about that path because it just becomes a habit, right? And so that's where we fall into that. And what we're trying to do when we're trying to move through binge eating is actually build a new, like carve out a new pathway in that hay, which is why often we kind of come back to that easy pathway. That's our path of least resistance. And so when you ha when you struggle with binge eating, every time you binge eat in response to heartbreak, it, it confirms you've kind of trodden down that hay again. So it's just made that pathway easier again so that next time you do it, oh, look, that pathway is still there. I'm going to go down it. And so the more you do it, the less mindful you are of doing it and the kind of more out of body it feels because it just feels like this natural habit loop, which is why it can be so difficult to to break out of it. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And actually, I also am really curious as to what we know about this being a learned behavior as well. Like I know from my own experience, and I'm sure my mum won't mind me talking about this, but she suffered a lot with binge eating, like secretive binge eating. And I'm fascinated by the fact that, you know, it's something that I have then gone on to suffer with and whether that's almost like in some ways, one, a learned coping strategy, but also to a learned behavior. Do we know much about that? Yeah, I mean, this is, it's hard to unpick because we know that, eating disorders have a genetic component so even without the actual learned behavior that you've witnessed yourself there's probably an underlying genetic component with that that increases your risk of developing that but then on top of that if you are witnessing that 
there's a couple of things here because there is the learned behavior of if you see someone that you like a main parental figure doing that then you are much more likely to do that yourself because you see well mum when mum feels like this this is how she learns to cope with it so that yeah. must be the way that is the right way to do it and so there is that learned behavior but then on top of that we kind of interject these values as we get older and what I mean by that is this is not your situation but imagine you grow up with a man and a woman and you're the child and the man says to the mum, oh, you you look much better when you're thinner or you com- co- comments on her weight regularly or shames her for the way that she eats regularly. What happens is you start to internalise those values as your own and you start to see, well, dad loves mum more when she's thinner or dad loves mum more when she's eating in this way. So therefore that must be the way that to... to create a loving dynamic and so even without that being vocalized you start to interject that value and that's just one very kind of trivial example but if you imagine growing up in a household where there are struggles with this dynamic and then on top of that you are growing up in a society where especially as women thin is celebrated and we're told it's more successful we've got all of these kind of um, values coming on to us we've got these learned behaviors that we've seen whether it be our parents whether it's something that we've seen on TV, our friends, and then this sort of genetic component. Uh, it just is, it's, it amazes me that it's not more common. It, amaz- uh, and it amazes me that we're not more open about it because it seems almost like, well, of course, of course that that, that was a likely outcome of that whole situation. But yeah. we're not, I think it's just that we're not often aware of it, especially as children, we're not aware of that. Why would we be aware? We don't know what's going on. And I think that... Um, I actually, and this is a complete, you know, that this isn't grounded in any evidence, but I do feel that the more we encourage women to to restrict, if we look at the last 10 years of um, the real change of narrative around food, um, around the fitness industry, around the health and well-being sphere, let's call it, uh, around restriction, around control, um, I almost feel like the more we try and hammer those narratives, the more we're going to have people that are in secret, unfortunately, succumbing to these behaviors. Because as we said previously, you know, that complete disconnect between the image that we try and portray outwardly versus the person that we're trying to manage and deal with and those internal kind of struggles inwardly. Um, and often food can be the number one coping strategy for that sort of thing. Um, if someone's listening to this and they are suffering with binge eating, in within varying degrees I'm sure there's a real spectrum but what would be the first few steps to try and aside from coming to work with yourself (laughs) what would be the first few steps to trying to find a sense of um I guess recovery um I I know that that's obviously a big word and and there's so much within that but you know for a lot of people listening I'm sure they're going to relate to what we've spoken about and if they wanted to take those first few steps what would your advice be yeah, I think the the fundamental thing is speaking to your doctor. If you're at all concerned, is speaking to your GP. And I know sometimes I speak to a lot of people that are afraid to do that or they feel shame for doing that. But GPs have heard, you know, it all before. And yeah. even if you think, well, it's not too bad. It's not as extreme that I need to speak to my GP. There's absolutely no harm in in having that initial conversation. So that is the first thing that I would say. And, and be online as well, B-E-A-T. They're fantastic. They've got online advisors. So you can speak to them online anonymously again really recommend that that's the first thing but then aside from that in terms of how you can support yourself there's some behavioral things and some kind of more self-awareness tools that we can use that are really accessible 
And the first one is the hardest one. And I think you probably know what I'm going to say is to eat regularly and not restrict. And it is so hard to do, but it is so essential to your recovery from binge eating. Like you explained earlier, that feeling of waking up in the morning, feeling really hideous and just angry at yourself and bloated and sluggish. But the the one thing that you want to do in that moment is to skip breakfast and to have a light lunch and to make up for it later in the day. And I say make up for it in a kind of, again, quote unquote sense. It's not, you're, that's yeah. not what you're doing. Um, the best thing that you can do, and if you speak to any professional at all, will say to you, you need to start eating regularly. And that means when you wake up in the morning, yes, you can have a coffee and sit for 10 minutes, but then have a breakfast. A breakfast that is satiating, which might you might not even really understand what fullness feels like to you right now. And that's really not the purpose of this. Sometimes we, especially in the current narrative in the fitness industry and wellness space, everyone wants to get to this place of eating intuitively and say, I want to intuitively eat. But if you're trying to recover from binge eating, that's not necessarily the first step that you want to do. You actually just want to get into a regular eating pattern, which will mean eating when you're not hungry and doing that regularly throughout the day. So starting with breakfast and then eating every three hours or so throughout the day. Three main meals, two to three snacks consistently, even if you're not hungry, number one. And that takes work and it takes intention, but it's so rewarding. The other thing that you can do straight away is, is to buy a journal or just get your notes on your phone and start to get a little bit curious about what's happening for me when I do binge eat. What's leading up to these, this situation where I feel like I'm binge eating? What are the thoughts in my head? What's my day been like? What's my sleep been like? What's my food been like? And then journaling again after it, afterwards and not journaling in the sense of calling yourself names and being critical towards yourself, but actually coming up with some ways to show yourself kindness in that moment of it's okay, you're learning to trust yourself again, you're doing this work, whatever resonates with you in terms of how you speak to yourself, journaling afterwards and trying to then start to get a bit of an understanding of that's interesting, I always overeat on a weekend. Okay, well, what changes on a weekend? And starting to get curious about that. Um, And I think one of the key questions you can ask yourself is, you know, how did that serve me? How did binge eating serve me in that moment? And it can be that you might not have an answer for that for quite a long time because it feels quite counterintuitive to think, well, it didn't, it just made me feel rubbish. But you might recognise this, that often, most of the time we want to stop binge eating but five minutes before we binge eat, we don't want to stop binge eating. Five minutes before we binge eat, we want to binge eat. So there's a, re- there's a reason for that. So journaling can be really, really helpful to start to get curious about that. And, you know, I have journal prompts on my website. You can get them online in loads of different places that, that are specific to your relationship with food if you're not sure even, you know, where to start. We'll put the link to that in the in the show notes. Um, I think that being curious about it is really important and the other thing that I think is so important in my own recovery was removing the judgment like as soon as you take away which is easier said than done by the way but you know as soon as you take away that sense of judgment and you be curious about why did this happen what led me to this point like I think for me really understanding my triggers which were actually glaringly obvious once I actually started to look at the behaviors objectively um why why am I doing this and and exactly as you said like what what did it do for me what did I need in that moment that binge eating gave me and how could I better serve myself with something else that's less painful I guess and I think that you know that's such an 
such a hard thing to do and it takes like you said a lot of time and I think to anyone listening who's going through this I always think that everything is made to be simpler and easier online everyone makes it seem as though it's just oh just buy a journal and it's fine do you know what I mean and I, and I completely hear why we say that because it, it is amazing and, and from own personal experience absolutely it's something that's really helped me but I also think to know that that journey isn't ever a linear one and so you know, binge eating can be something that even now, every now and then, I'm pretty sure will rear its ugly head with both myself, maybe with you too. You know, we we are going to have moments where it really challenges us or we go through challenging times and it becomes that strategy that you lean towards again. But I think that the ultimate thing that I try and lead with is curiosity. Why has this happened? Not why did I do this? Oh my God, I'm an awful person. But like, what was that doing for me right then? And why did I need that right in that moment? And actually what is the kind of, I guess, deeper deeper meaning of leaning to food for support yeah I absolutely love that and I think curiosity with all of this stuff with relationship with food and relationship with your body is so important it's the same as with you know dieting we often fall into behaviors around food like restrictive food habits and we don't even know why we don't get curious about well why do I want to diet for a holiday say I just do it because I think that that's what I'm supposed to do or why do I want to lean into this behavior I'm not really sure why do I struggle with rest and and rather than saying that's just me this is a, such a common thing of I'm just a binge eater or I'm just a perfectionist or I'm all or nothing we identify as this type of person and it's not you have these habits and they're not who you are and kind of trying to disidentify from those habits and then just getting curious like you said is just oh, that's that's interesting that I'm still having that thought and I think what you said about sometimes these things will come back and, and you know, you might have an episode of, of binge eating or emotional eating, whatever that is. And the idea is not to never have that drive to do it again because you're a human being and that drive might be there now and again, potentially for a long time. The idea is not that you failed when that happens. The idea is that the next time you get more able to understand why that happened and you can sort of replace that with something else longer term and something that like I'll do it. I know that I still can sometimes feel a little bit like, well, that's interesting. I feel a bit of an urge to, to binge eat. And that's for me, it's very rare these days. But now I've shifted the perspective to saying that urge means I need to soothe. I need to regulate myself. I need to do all of the things that I know help me. Yeah. Meditation, yoga, skateboarding is my thing. Baking is my thing. All of these things that I know really soothe my soul. And it's just because, you know, we've spent so many years getting curious about, well, what does soothe me? And I think coming back to the question before of, you know, what can we do? One of the key things is this regulation part of if you're spending your days in this kind of fight or flight mode all the time and you're responding to your phone, you're responding to your kids, to your colleagues, to your work, that is so, so important to get a handle on too because if you're chronically in this fight or flight state, it's very, very hard to regulate yourself. And when it's very hard to regulate yourself, you'll turn to more dysfunctional habits to do that and that will be things like food or exercise or you know something else and so really working on day-to-day -day stress management I've lost count of the number of times I've said to people who who Instagram message me and they say oh I'm struggling with emotional eating and I say well what do you do to manage your emotions outside of food and they'll say nothing I don't know okay. and so we have to again get curious about well what soothes you what makes you feel present what makes you feel calm what what helps you in your moments of grief and really starting to understand that for yourself and what might be skateboarding for me might be sex for someone else or might be I don't know 
time alone for someone else, but it's about getting curious about what that is for yourself. Yeah, and it's almost like as well, you know, I know a lot of people find it, maybe it sounds a bit cliche to talk about your inner child, but when you talk about soothing and you talk about kind of that self-regulation, um, I always think of that person inside yourself, you know, what would you give to the child inside of you? What would you give to that person who needs soothing? And, and you're absolutely right. Like, I guess modern life is very go, go, go. It's very fight or flight. And, and I do think a lot of us are so disassociated from like what we need and what we think we need to do. Um, and so we find ourselves in this weird kind of juggle of, of never quite being soothed, calmed, um, peaceful peaceful you know um and i think that's where all those things like the journaling and the meditation and that stuff you know as much as they're kind of um buzzwords in the fitness industry and in the wellness space right now there are also things that are hugely valuable and i think if we understand why they have value the purpose and stuff they can help a lot more weight as a kind of coping strategy rather than just being like oh i'm going to buy a journal and you know it's it's tick, tick box done yeah. <laughs> you are <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But like the purpose and how you've explained it there is is just so perfect to understanding why it has a has a, a role. And I think that's really interesting. Um, just on my final point, I think that um, for a lot of people that might be listening, I think it's important to understand um, shame and shame around food and shame around ourselves. And I think that it'll be really nice to hear how you manage that side of, of emotional eating. I know we've probably touched on it a little bit, but I think just as a as a final closing, I think that the number one thing that a lot of people leave binge eating with is that sense of shame. Um, mm -hmm. I know that it's something that I've really struggled with. So what would you say, you know, in terms of advice for for that specific emotion? How do you help people to manage that? It's a great question. And I don't I don't know if it ever completely goes away, even when we have this discussion. It's a I don't know about you, but it's still a little bit uncomfortable for me to go, well, that that was me and yeah, yeah. Professional. And there's there's still that lingering bit of it's vulnerable. It's very, it's very yeah. vulnerable, and, and that's that's tough. And one of my favorite quotes, again, I've brought her up twice already. Brene Brown's quote is, "You know, shame corrodes the very part of us that is capable of change." And I love that because it reminds me that the only way to foster any sort of helpful change is to try and remove the shame from the situation. And um, I think, you know, she explains it really well as empathy being the antidote to shame. And I think that, that is so true we think that keeping shame to ourselves is the best thing because it it minimizes it but keeping it to ourselves only lets it grow and only emphasizes it within ourselves and sharing it with somebody whether it be somebody you trust whether it be um, a coach or your doctor or somebody a best friend where you can say this is what I'm feeling that as, you, as long as you know that you trust them and they can show you empathy that's the ultimate way to help start to reduce that shame and have listening to podcasts like this and and following helpful people on social media that talk about this in a way that isn't shameful in a way that this is my understanding of it and you're reminding people that you're not alone it's that connectedness I think that rem removes the shame so trying to not take yourself out and think that it's just a, a me thing the more you exclude yourself the more that shame is just going to exacerbate and if it, you know, reading something like Daring Greatly, which is one of my favorite books, where she goes into a lot of this shame is, is was life changing for me. Um, I really think it's the connection with other people and not not oversharing, not going on social media and saying, I binge eat and I don't know what to do about it. And just kind of word vomiting to anyone that will listen. 
really being selective and saying this person I know is very empathetic and I can trust this person and having those conversations and hopefully that you do have those people to have those conversations with and if you don't then maybe you can self-refer for therapy maybe you can start with your journal and just getting out onto paper for yourself and something I do with my clients actually is it's a self-compassion task that I learned from, I went to UCLA Mindfulness Awareness Research Centre and they have an amazing mindfulness and compassion department. And one of the tools that they gave me was what you're going to do is is write down what it is that you're struggling with, how you feel about yourself. So say it was binge eating and you write down, you know, a binge eating, this is how I feel when I do it and I hate myself for it. whatever comes up for you, getting all on paper taking a walk after that or doing 10 minutes of breathing or meditation and then coming back to it and thinking about somebody that you really love and you really respect. They don't have to be alive anymore. It could be, I think I did my granddad, you know, anyone that you really value their opinion. Mm. And then write a letter to yourself from their perspective about what you've just said and write it all out. And then oh, look wow. back and say, it's really powerful. Everyone, uh, we were in a room about 50 people and everyone was crying and it was think- really powerful. And it's why I do it with all of my clients because it makes you realize one that you're not alone but two you deserve to be treated in a kind way and three that person didn't say those things you said those things to yourself and if yeah. you can those things to yourself from someone else's perspective you have the capacity and the capability to say things to yourself like that all the time but you're choosing not to do it and so you can challenge yourself a little bit then on your self-talk and that's really effective for trying to remove that shame because you reduce the self-criticism that comes with it. That is so amazing. I'm definitely going to try and do that. Um, Amelia, thank you so, so much. This has honestly been really insightful and um, quite an emotional episode, I guess, in terms of just vulnerability, but I really appreciate your openness. And um, yeah, I just hope that anyone listening finds this helpful and um, we'll put your social media links in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I would love it if you could take some time to rate, review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it. We have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out. See you next time. Insanity Group.